James chapter 4. And I'll read through verses 1 through 4. Actually, 1 through 6 for context. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is, it not, the, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do, not, um, you do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You do not ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You are adulterous. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you not think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the word of God. And Father, we ask you this morning, clear up the mind, put our hearts in attention to your word. Father, be thou glorified, exalted, lifted up, and praised. And Father, help me this morning to bring clarity to your word. Father, that Christ would increase and that everything about us would decrease. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit has to say, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. In every church, in every Christian organization, there are those that profess the name of Jesus Christ that are not born-again true believers. It's just the way it is. They may love the religious institution. They may love the moral and ethical component that goes with religion. Uh, they may love the fellowship of the saints, but spiritually they're not saved. The scriptures would describe some of these as tares, tares among the wheat, as goats among the sheep. Jesus referred to them in Matthew 13 as those on whom the seed was sown on rocky soil. Matthew 13, verses 20 to 23, read this. And the one on whom the seed was sown on rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word and the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word away and it becomes unfruitful. Notice that Jesus says, these have no firm root. They're temporary. They fall away. And Jesus says that ultimately they become unfruitful. And it's important to note that these are not terms used for believers. Right? A believer is never going to be unfruitful. They could be some of our dearest friends. They could be people that we know. The issue is we do not know who they are. We're not the Holy Spirit. Their obedience and their, and their loyalties, James is going to describe their loyalties and their obedience are tied to the world. 
John MacArthur defines worldliness this way. Worldliness is a system of sin or the system of sin. All that is in that anti-God, anti-Christ system is made up of a matrix of lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Now, as we continue in our study of our epistle of James, we now have come to the point in chapter 4 where James is addressing worldliness, and specifically worldliness in the church. I remember when I was a kid, um, worldly was a very popular term for us. Unfortunately, many times it referred to how you dressed or if your hair was touching your collar or what you did, you were always deemed as worldly. I remember having a conversation with my mom where she said something was worldly, and I said, what, what does that mean, Ma? What does that mean, you know? And my mother said, well, that means that you want the things of the world more than you want the things of God. And there is a measure of truth to that. As we look at James chapter 4, James is going to define for us what worldliness is. As a matter of fact, if we were going to outline the chapter, you can outline it this way. First, you see the cause of worldliness in verses 1 and 2. The second is you see the consequence of worldliness in verses 3 through 6. Then you see the cure for worldliness in verses 7 through 10. And lastly, you see the characteristics of worldliness in verses 11 to 17. Today we're going to look at the first two. Today we're going to look at the cause of worldliness and the consequence of worldliness. Look at verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source of... It, Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? Here in James 1, in in verse 1, James addresses the the issue of strife in the church. Now, I want to point out something to you. The issue here, James, as we know, is writing to Christians. He's writing to Christians that are dispersed. He's writing to churches who are going to receive this letter and read this letter. And it is abundantly clear that James is saying there, are, there is a measure of strife. There are quarrels that are going on within the body of Christ. And it refers to the real problem that's occurring. And these appear to have been uh, divisions in the church. There were schisms. There were slight divisions in the church. And discord and division is always the work of tares that are sown among the wheat. Unbelievers that sit among the wheat. Now, the religious-looking unbelievers, they have a different agenda at times. And are not driven by the Holy Spirit, but they're going to see, as we see in the text, they're driven by their flesh. And no matter how they phrase their words, deep down inside, it is always about their will. It is always about their will. And because it is that, it is always a fleshly wisdom. And it conflicts with the Holy Spirit's wisdom. The victims of worldly-minded people are, are, are churches. Churches that continually fight. Churches that continually have schisms. And to do that, to hold against that, believers must always hold to the word 
of God. We're seeing this happening real time today as you look at many different churches that are being divided over various issues, be they doctrinal, be they social issues, whatever. The body of Christ is being torn apart. And it's critical that we hold to the Word of God. Multiple times in my life I have seen this, and it is painful beyond words. I'm sure some of you have been through this. Look, even it was sad to hear that this even occurred in my father's church. For 88 years, that church stood united, undivided. There was never a split. There was never divisions. There were never camps, right? Upon my father's death, they came out. I remember having a conversation with my dad right before he was about to pass away. We talked about the church. And I said to my father, I said, Pop, you know that, you know, when there's a void, it's not the sheep that go rushing in, it's the wolves. And as soon as the Lord took my father home, the wolves came in. And unbelievers that were unwitting agents of the enemy caused schisms and disruptions. Things degenerated into name-calling, almost physical blows. Do you believe this? Almost physical blows. And I'm sure some of you can tell me a few stories of some bad things. There's always the tares among the wheat. There's always the the goats among the sheep and the wolves that come out. Here in verse 1, James says that the source of the quarrels, the source of the arguments are your pleasures. And pleasures, that word refers to sensual pleasures, that which is enjoyable to the flesh. That's imposing your will. And these pleasures can range from anything from pride, from the desire to be noticed, a lust for things, ungodly passions, passions that are outside of the control of the Holy Spirit. And Galatians 5 describes these things. He refers, Paul refers to it as the deeds of the flesh. Look with me at Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Paul writes, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousies, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. He calls these the deeds of the flesh the byproducts of the flesh, what becomes manifest, what becomes evident. And note Paul's words at the end of that in Galatians 5.21, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. James calls these pleasures the source of the quarrels, the source of, of the strife that is coming. Look at verse 2 of James 4. 
He says, you lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Now, let me say something to this subject matter, right? We're going through James contextually. And James has always presented true faith as a series of tests. And in order to define true faith, it's important to define what it's not. So though these passages are not pleasant, they're not super soothing to the mind or to the soul, you may be going through something right now and you may say, well, this has nothing to do with what I'm not going, but it is the word of God. And we need to heed these things. James says here in verse 2, he says, you lust and you do not have. You know, lust, lust drives passion. And desire drives lust. So you desire something, you want something, you covet something, you yearn for something. And here James is speaking about this in a negative context. As a matter of fact, that word for lust is to long for, to covet, to be able to possess, and to set one's heart upon. It is the desire to have something, and when nothing, and when not having it, it drives envy. It drives jealousy, which results in fights and quarrels. The mind not set on Christ, the unbelieving heart, will do whatever it has to do to possess what it wants despite the consequences. And we see this being played out in our society every day. Listen to some of these startling facts. For over 70 years, we've known the danger of smoking, have we not? We know it causes cancer. We know it causes heart disease. We know it causes artery disease, right? This is 70, maybe 80 years we've known this, right? According to the CDC, they estimate that 30.8 million people in the U.S. smoke cigarettes. And that doesn't include vaping, by the way, which is equally as harmful, right? 30.8 million. It's estimated the population of the United States is 350 million, so it's roughly, what, 9, 8%, 10% of population. But not only is there danger to the person who smokes, but we also know of secondhand smoke danger that also exposes the victims of that smoke to the same diseases at the, as the smoker. We've known for the longest time the danger of the abuse of alcohol, do we not? Yet according to the government, one person dies every 45 minutes from drunk driving. One person every 45 minutes to drunk driving. Since 2019, there has been a 14% increase in drunk driving deaths. Yet this, despite the fact that we've done massive campaigns about drinking and responsibility, the number of deaths are increasing. The FBI, it's funny, I'm mentioning the CDC and the FBI, both organizations I don't put an iota of trust in, but anyway, whatever. But the, the FBI estimates that 70%, 70% of violent crimes involve people under the influence of alcohol. 
Despite that, we've known about the uh, we we've known about what the world calls safe sex or unsafe sex, right? Promiscuity, immorality. We've known about that. Sexual liberalness. The CDC estimates that one in five people suffer from sexually transmitted diseases. One in five, 20%. This equates to 68 million STIs. They are sexually transmitted incidents. And nearly one in two occur in people 15 to 24 years old. And this is the one that blows me away. We all know about drug abuse and the dangers of drugs, right? According to the National Survey on Drug Use and Health, 19.7 million Americans adult, uh, uh, American adults aged 12 and older battle a substance use disorder in 2017. Almost 74% of adults suffering from substance abuse in 2017 struggled with alcohol abuse, right? About 38% of adults in 2017 battled an illicit drug disorder. Health statistics indicate an estimated 100,306 drug overdose deaths in the United States during a 12-month period ending in April of 2021, an increase of 28.5% from the 78,056 deaths during the same period a year before. Now, just to put this in perspective, more Americans died from drug overdoses in America in one year, in 2021, than the total of the Vietnam War, the first Gulf War, the war in Iraq, and the war in Afghanistan combined in one year, in one year. And we still have drug abuse. And we still have all of these problems because the heart that is intent, the heart that is outside of Jesus Christ will do what it has when it begins to lust for what it wants. And this is written all over our society. There's a litany of other statistics that one can quote. Is it then any surprise that James says the ultimate pursuit of pleasure could lead to death? Look at verse 2 again. You lust and you do not have and you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. 1 John chapter 2. The Apostle John warns of this. And in 1 John 2 verses 15 through 16, he gives a warning to the church. And the warning to the church is this. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Note that James states something very uh, uh, similar in verse 16. He says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, 
is not from the Father. As believers, we must guard our hearts against the world. And here's the hardest thing. The world is seductive. The world system is seductive. It doesn't bring all the horrors associated with sin, but yet it would bring all the pleasures associated with sin. And it's subtle. And it's contained in the media. And it's contained in Hollywood. And it's contained in the sports world. And it's designed to cause us as believers and unbelievers to worship that which is not worthy. We want to worship movie stars and we want to be part of the movies and we want to be part of the music scene. And it gets our heart's affections away from Christ and onto the world. And James would say and John would say and Paul would say and Jesus would say, love not the world. What is worldliness? You love the world. You love the world system. You love the things of the world. And therefore, it becomes incumbent upon us to guard our hearts. To guard our hearts. We often think about guarding the hearts of our children. Don't we? And we think about guarding the hearts of our grandchildren. And we want to say, hey, we want to protect them. We want to guard their hearts. But no matter whether you're 17 or 70... You need to guard your heart from what you see, from what you hear, from what you speak, from what you surround yourself with. And if you can't be a testimony for Jesus Christ, then you need to remove those things and get alone with God. We have a lot of unsaved friends. We have a lot of unsaved family members. We love them dearly. I'm not talking about being all cloistered and and doing all of that. But we need to protect our testimony before them, that they should see Christ in us rather than no Christ at all. Look at verse 3 of chapter 4. He says this, You ask and and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend it on your pleasures. Though King James would say you ask amiss. You're missing the mark in your request. And here we see the consequence. We saw in verses 1 and 2 the cause of worldliness, but now what are some of the consequences of worldliness? You could be a believer, and you could be beset by worldly desires. In verse 3, James discusses the consequences of such actions. And it could be said that this rule applies to believers and unbelievers. In verse 3, he refers to asking in prayer and not receiving. He says the cause is worldliness. The consequence is unanswered prayer. It's unanswered prayer. Now to unbelievers who are masquerading in the church as Christians... James says regarding prayer that they, they ask and they do not receive. Proceeds to say that the problem is their motives are wrong. They have wrong motives. They ask amiss. And what that wrong motives actually means is it's referring to impure motives. These are motives that they want to spend on their personal pleasures. These are motives that are selfishly oriented. 
worldly motivations, some of which we already discussed in verse 1 and 2. And we see this clearly at the end of verse 3 when James says, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. But this principle applies also to believers. When believers get their priorities wrong, when the requests are not honoring to God, when they're not about the glory of God, when they're not centered within Christ, believers themselves can go to prayer with wrong motives. You know, somebody could pray, oh boy, I wish I could be a preacher, and their motivation is about sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Their motivation could be to be seen by people. Matter of fact, one of the tragedies, I think, in the church today is that the visible gifts, the visible gifts, the preaching, the teaching, the singing, the worship, the visible gifts are elevated. To a, they're elevated. And people look enviously. Oh, boy, I wish I could do that. And I'd be a liar to say when I wasn't a young man, that wasn't in my heart. That was in my heart. But it goes beyond that. It could be something as simple as money. Well, Lord, you know, I really need that BMW. You don't understand. Like, I really, really need that BMW, Lord. And, you know, and I, I know it's, you know, $80,000. But, Lord, I could just think, Lord, how many people I could fit in the back of that BMW to take to church. Lord, I really need that boat. I'm going to go out and catch so much fish that I'm going to give half of it to the poor and I'm going to, I'm going to feed them. And we laugh and we chuckle at things like that. But what does the Bible say about the heart? The heart is deceitfully wicked above all else and who can know it? And we always have to examine our motivations. And you hear a lot of frustration about people who say, I pray, I pray, I pray, I pray, I pray, and God does not answer. Maybe some of our motives are impure. Maybe some of the motives that we have, I'm not saying that this is the case. What I'm saying, the possibility exists. You know, when we talk about prayer, there's multiple answers to prayer. I always say, you know, God didn't answer? No, I haven't heard on Maybe the answer is no. But there's multiple answers to prayer, are there not? There's no. Lord, I ask you for this. No. I remember my dad, he was the best. Like, sometimes, you know, I say, Dad, I need a new pair of sneakers. No. That was it. There was no appeal. There was no appeal court. You didn't, you didn't even get an opportunity to explain why you needed new sneakers. It was just, I need sneakers. No. End the story. And sometimes God deals with us like that, does he not? Lord, I need this. No. Boy, does that ever ring true? Lord, we need a place. No. At least for now. Right? Then there's wait. That's the one we don't like. Lord, we need this. Hold on. Lord, it's been a month. Hold on. Lord, it's been a year. Hold on. That's the frustrating one. 
I could take the no, it's the weight that makes it a little bit more frustrating, right? And then there's, if you do this, I'll do that. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then will I hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. The Lord may say, okay, I'm going to do it. You need to do this. Then there's the one we love. Yes. That's the one we're waiting for all the time. Yes. Father, I need this. Yes. I had that experience this week. I set my mind to prayer about a particular thing, about a particular subject. There was a little bit of a delay, delay, delay. And then the Father said, yes, go, do. We love those. We go, praise God, the Lord heard my prayer. This, right before service, someone who had come up for prayer requests, had come to the altar a week ago or two weeks ago, just came to report, hey, I just want to let you know that the next day after we prayed, boom, this happened. It's got nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with God right? We pray for healing for a particular situation. This past week was a real example. My granddaughter Julia was was really sick and was in terrible pain. And I sent out text messages, can you pray for my daughter, my granddaughter Julia? 15 minutes after I sent the, the text message, boom, stop, fever declined, everything went has everything to do with God, right? It's beautiful. We love that. But here James is talking about asking with wrong motives. And he's saying, you're not receiving what you're asking for because you're asking with wrong motives. But I'm going to tell you something right now. Knows to prayer requests is nothing more than God's mercy at his shepherding us and not giving us everything we ask for. A no is God's mercy. It's God's love. I'm not going to give you this thing. This thing is not right for you. I'm not going to give you this thing. This is going to draw you further away from me than it is going to draw you to me. So the answer is no. When I was a young boy, I asked my dad, Dad, can I take the subway to go to Yankee Stadium? My dad said, no, you can. Why? Because he didn't want me to see the Yankee game? No, because he was worried about me as a young boy on a subway where there's a lot of violence and there's a lot of danger. Many times when God says no, instead of sulking, instead of getting depressed, instead of saying, I don't understand it, it should force us to close in even closer to God and say, Father, Father, I understand. I am going to take your no with grace because I know as a believer that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love the Lord and who are called according to his purpose. No is a mercy of God. But that's not what James is talking about here. He's saying, you're asking for these things, you're not getting them, and the reason you're not getting them is you have impure 
motives. You have selfish motivation. You want to do nothing more but to spend this on your pleasures. You know, the Word of God tells us this all the time. James said earlier in chapter 1, right, he said, As any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally. But there's a catch. If there is sin in the heart, if there is impurity in the heart, if the motivation is sinful, then God will not answer prayer. Psalm 66, 18 says this, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Think of that. If I harbor iniquity in my heart, the Lord does not hear. Psalm 145, 18 through 19. Look what it says. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. And he will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. And he will also hear their cry and will save them. And the questions we got to ask ourselves, and we have to ask ourselves is this. Are there unanswered prayers in our life? And are our motivations right before God? Are our motivations right? Are you praying for your desires? Are you praying for your uh, pleasures? then the Lord will honor those who honor him. And that's a pivotal truth. Look at verse 4. James says this, You adulteress, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Matthew Henry says this about prayer. He says, if we thus seek the things of the world, it is just in God to deny them. Unbelieving and cold desires beg denials. And we may be sure that when prayers are rather the language of lust than of grace, they will return empty. Notice in verse 4. James tells us what is the ultimate result of this worldliness. The ultimate result is this, being comfortable in the world, close to the world, thinking like the world, friendly toward the world and all of its pleasures. This lifestyle and thinking, he says, is enmity, enmity against God. Better translated enmity, better translated is hostility toward God. And James continues speaking to those comfortable, those professed Christians who are unsaved. But in the church, he calls out worldliness by using three very, very direct and distinct terms. The three are adulterous, hostility, and enemy. We all know what adultery is, but in a spiritual context, it is used on behalf of the people of God who betray God. 
We see Israel time and time again through the prophets were referred to as adulterous toward God as they integrated pagan practices within the church. This is how James uses the term here in verse 4. He goes on to say, he said they are hostile. He says friendship with the world is hostility toward God. You notice that there's not a neutrality there. I want you to see that. There is no neutrality. It's one or the other. Either you are with God or you are against God. Jesus put it this way. No man can serve two masters. Either he will love one and hate the other. James says this worldly-mindedness is hostility toward God. And that basically translates to, to one who strives against God, who is battling God for control. And then James goes on to write, Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes him makes himself an enemy of God. An enemy is like enmity, it's like hostility, it's one who is hostile toward God. My goodness, would you ever want to be defined as an enemy of God? These are strict terms. James uses that to describe the person whose agenda is solely focused on being friendly and pleasing to the world. Matter of fact, it's been my experience, both personally and as I've seen through the years, that one of the immediate signs of someone falling away from the faith is how they turn friendly toward the things of the world. The things that they previously abhorred, the things they tried to avoid, all of a sudden you see them re-engaging with that. That is a big warning sign. James clearly and he unmistakably associates this behavior with unbelief. And it's unbelief in the purest sense they don't believe God. Now this is bad news. This is bad news for the unbeliever. But it's not, we as believers have good news. And it's the good news of Christ who delivered us from the domain of darkness into the domain of light. And in the domain of light, for now, we still struggle. We still contend. The enemy's constantly sniping, constantly trying to trip us up. The writer of Hebrews tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before us endured the cross. And previously he tells us, listen, let go of the sin that so easily entangles us. And that's the danger of sin. That's the thing that sin does. It may start minor. It may start trivial. But do we understand there's no such thing as a trivial sin in the kingdom of God? And then what happens, it's, it's like vine when you're walking through the woods and you get, you get caught up in the vine and you start to trip up. 
The writer of Hebrews says that we're to fix our eyes on Christ. Why? Because Christ is our author. He is our finisher. He started, He will complete. He is the perfecter of our faith. He's the one who causes all things to work together for good. It is Christ. It is delivering power of Jesus Christ. And while there will always be until the rapture, there will always be those who enter into the church that are false believers, but a day is coming when that will all be done. And until that day, we are to fight. We are to fight for holiness. We are to fight for righteousness. We are to fight to remain true to Christ. We do not want to be identified as hostile toward God. We do not want to be at enmity with God. The believer will never be identified as an enemy of God. I know there's a lot of teaching out there that people say, well, you know, a Christian could be backslidden, he could be backslidden, all the way to the point that he rejects Jesus Christ, even to the point of becoming an atheist. Where do they get that from? Can somebody tell me where they get that from? If they are hostile toward God, if they are denying the truth of the gospel, if they are at enmity with God, if they are warring and striving against God, how in the world could they have been born again of seed which is incorruptible? No. The believer loves God. The believer has his heart inclined toward God. The righteous stumble, but they get back up. They don't stay down. And the joy that we could have as we go through a text like this is we could say, if we are in Christ, although I stumble, although I fall, there is one that I could come to, one who's an advocate, that if I confess my sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us my sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The thing about the fall is it is the exception, not the norm. And so as believers, we have a glorious hope. Which is why we should be compelled to share that gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you what Christ has done in my life. Let's point men and women to Jesus Christ and say, I used to be this, now I'm this. I used to walk in darkness. I used to engage in these sins. But now I'm a follower of Christ. Let our friends say, what happened to you? We used to go out together. We used to do this together. We used to do that together. Now you're a holy roller. And I go, praise God, I'm a holy roller. That's our testimony. It's not that we're to look like the world. You know, there's this thought process that we're to look like the world, sound like the world. Therefore, the world will say, how cool these Christians are. I think I want to be like them. But that's a false truth. What drew people to Jesus Christ? Was, that, was it that he walked, spoke, and acted like the Pharisees, scribes, and Sadducees? No. Mark chapter 1 tells us, who is this man who speaks with authority, 
unlike the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. It is the difference in us that men and women will respond to. It is the Christ-likeness in us that God will use us to bring other men and women to Christ. We always have to remember this. So what does this have to do with us? That's always what it boils down to. What does this have to do with me? If I was sitting and listening to this message, that's what I'd say. What has it got to do with me? Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians 6.14. He says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, and what fellowship has light with darkness? We just saw the cause of worldliness which James defines as your pleasures and your lust. And we have seen the consequence of worldliness, which is friendship with the world, making you an enemy of God, putting you hostile toward God. And consequently, you become that enemy. The follower of Christ was an enemy of God. But Paul says in Romans 5.10, we were reconciled to God. As believers, we are called not to love the world or the things in it. We are called to love Christ and to obey Christ and be followers of Christ. Can I ask you an honest question? What in the world is so good that there is to love? Can somebody explain that to me? This world is decaying so fast and so rapidly, it's beyond words. I love Paul's statement in Galatians 6.14. Turn there with me. This should be the heart of every believer. James 6.14, Galatians 6.14, I'm sorry. The Apostle Paul closing out his epistle to the Galatians who had fallen away from the true faith and were going back into a faith plus work system. He writes these words, But may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice these last words. Through which the world has been crucified to me and I the world. Simply put, Paul writes, let me never boast in anything else except Christ. And in Christ, I have died to the world. I have been crucified. The world has been crucified to me. And likewise, I to the world. And so the question that we ask ourselves, is that devotion evident in our lives? That's the question. Is it evident in our lives? Do we have that hunger and thirst and that passion for God, or is our hunger and thirst and passion more for the world than the things of the world? The world will never save. And if your mind is oriented on the things of the world, and you are a believer of Jesus Christ, By and large, you're going to be a weak and powerless believer in Jesus Christ. If you desire the things of the world more than God, 
That's a perfect opportunity to repent and turn from your sins and place all of your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Isn't it time, church? Isn't it time that all of us are right with God? Isn't it time that we have a love and an affection that supersedes any other passion that could ever be mustered against us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.